Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. On March 9th, 1987, a little more than 10 years after a bunch of kids met up in a Dublin kitchen, U2 released their fifth album. Expectations were running pretty high. After establishing themselves with their first two albums, there was a leap ahead with War in 1983. Then came the unforgettable fire in 1984. That represented another leap forward. Things seemed more sophisticated, stronger, bigger, better. And much of the credit has to go to the new production team of Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois, guys who found new ways to bring new things out of the band. This partnership worked so well that everyone agreed that they should work together again on the next record. Maybe they could take things even further, build up the band even bigger. The result was the Joshua Tree, It has since sold somewhere north of 25 million copies, making it one of the best-selling albums of all time. It became a number one album in two dozen countries. Five of the 11 songs were released as singles, several of which sold more than a million copies on their own. The tour in support of the record had to grow from arenas to stadiums. It resulted in a live record called Live from Paris and a documentary film called Rattle and Hum. And it earned U2 two Grammys, Album of the Year and Group of the Year. The Joshua Tree set up the band as one of the biggest in the world, and over the coming decade, they would become the biggest band in the world. The album has been studied at all levels of academia, its songs covered thousands of times, the material has even been adopted as hymns for modern church services. Later, in 2014, the album was added to the U.S. Library of Congress as a recording considered to be culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. Wow, that's, that's a lot of stuff to think about when it comes to just one album, huh? Doesn't it make you curious about what went into making it? That's how I felt. So I thought I'd talk to one of the guys who was there with the band the entire time. Let's get his story on the making of The Joshua Tree. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. March 9th, 2017 was the 30th anniversary of U2's Joshua Tree album. On March 12th, 2017, U2 fans from around the Toronto area gathered at the Hard Rock Cafe in downtown Toronto. And the point of this was an interview between me and Joshua Tree co-producer Daniel Lanois. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Hard Rock Cafe. My name is Alan Cross. I'm the host of the Ongoing History of New Music. And I am a lifelong U2 fan. I remember exactly where I was when I first heard I Will Follow. I was in my room doing an essay for high school. This thing comes on, and the guy says, listen to the guitars. They're a bit weird, but I think you'll get into it. And I remember turning around, looking at my radio and going, what the hell is this? And that was it. And this is... What has brought me to tonight, and our special guest, Daniel Lanois. Thank you. Now, as, as everybody knows, March 9th, last Thursday, was the 30th anniversary of one of the greatest records ever released, which was the Joshua Tree, of course, and uh, Dan was there for the making of this record. So That's right. I, I thought that we... Here, let's have a seat. All right, Al. Thank let's you. Let's have a seat. Let's talk. I mean, this is a record that sold 25 million-ish copies. 
let me just pull out my questions here because I have, I have questions. So let's start about, let's start with your involvement. You were brought in to do The Unforgettable Fire with Brian Eno. When did you know that you, was, you were going to be involved in the album that came after? Well, having finished The Unforgettable Fire, I said to The Edge that I thought we had something left to say. And uh, on the strength of that tiny comment, uh, there was an invitation to carry on into the next record, which became The Joshua Tree. What, what was there left to say? What did you think? I felt that we had just uh, touched on some of the sonics that were um, most dear to us and that the experiments had only just begun and that uh, we had a lot to yet discover in terms of innovation. Because there was the first three albums, which are fairly, you know, looking back in retrospect, fairly uh, straight ahead rock oriented. You get to The Unforgettable Fire and there are new textures. There's songs like Bad, there's songs like, uh, you know, Wire, there's songs like uh, Pride the Name of Love, which were markedly different from anything that you two had done sonically up until that point. What did you and Brian Eno bring out on that record? We brought a sound to Dublin that we were already making in Hamilton. <laughs> um, and, uh, I had been working with Brian um, late 1979 to, let's say, 80, late 82, 83. We made a half a dozen ambient records in Hamilton, and we had refined this um, textural sound that Brian was very excited about. And we found, uh, through, through various experiments, we found a way of building sounds with different octaves. And so that stratospheric sound that that is heard on The Unforgettable Fire is something we already had up our sleeve from Hamilton. So there was, I talked to Larry Mellon once and he said one of the reasons he wanted to work with you on The Joshua Tree was because you had a real respect for the rhythm section. I was a man of the drum when I arrived in Dublin. <laughs> um, I had already experimented uh, in the old Hamilton library because the library had relocated and uh, the, the building they vacated was a beautiful uh, building, I think built in the 20s or 30s. And it had endless corridors and labyrinths and beautiful foyers and mezzanines. And I coincidentally had been experimenting in that old building. The city gave me the key to the place. So I recorded a couple of rock and roll records in that place because my own studio was a nice studio, but it was very padded, lots of carpet everywhere. And I just had this appetite to start experimenting with uh, uh, stranger rooms, you know, more reverberant rooms or denser rooms. So the, um, when, the, when the invitation came to work with you too, they also wanted to break the habit of the usual studio and they wanted to record in an environment that might be more expansive. So I was right for the job. So that's Dane's more... Dane's Moat House? Well, the, initially we recorded at Slane Castle, which was uh, for the Unforgettable Fire, but ultimately we ended up at Dane's Moat, which uh, became Adam's, Adam Clayton's house. And then did you finish up at Windmill Lane? We always finished up at Windmill Lane uh, because it was right in the city and a good place to mix. And sometimes we get two mixing rooms going. To, uh, we'd... Uh, have one mixing team on one side of the glass, the other team on the other side of the glass, and whenever you got a mix, you put up a scorecard. 
and uh, which would insinuate that you'd be ahead of the other room. So we had this little back and forth game going. So in 85, 86, and I'm just, and you're probably, people will probably agree with me. 85, 86, there was this anticipation that U2 was on the verge of doing something absolutely super extraordinary. I mean, we saw it with the Unforgettable Fire. There was the Amnesty International tour that came uh, after the record during the sessions for this, this album. And when the Joshua Tree finally hit on March 9th of 1987, uh, I think we were all kind of absolute, we knew that they were gonna do something big. I don't think we were prepared for something that big. I'm not sure anybody was. I mean, it's, it just sort of blew up, and I think the world was ready for something fresh and something vibrant and rock and roll with a new spirit, and I think it, just, it all came into focus at that time, Al. You know, I think the, uh, it's a great record, but it was an interesting time that way. There was a lot of embrace. Let's, uh, let's talk about the album. I want to go through it song by song. I, I remember uh, there was a press playing of the album before the record came out. And it was done at the old McLaughlin Planetarium. And we were all ushered in, and the lights went down, and then the synthesizer pulse from Where the Streets Have No Name slowly came up. And as the pulse came up, the stars came out on the dome. And then as Edge starts playing guitar, the stars start turning. And it was like, oh God, here we go. And I think this was the first song that I'd ever heard somebody describe as cinematic. And it really is. I mean, you listen to it today, and the, 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 it's so much more than just a, a rock song. It takes you someplace from the moment that synthesizer comes in. Well, it has a bit of sunrise and it does not, you know, as if the day is, is opening and uh, it, it suggests that there's a doorway to a certain kind of dimension and Bono had this vision about, uh, it was originally called White City and not where the streets have no name and White City would be a place where uh, there are no street signs and there are no signs of anything and you can wander, you get to, if dogs run, run free, why can't I? The term would apply. So it's sort of a, a, a utopia where we would get to one day where um, past judgment, past racism, um, past poverty lines, where uh, the world can be one. You know? There's a very famous story where the edge could not make the transition from rhythm uh, where his opening guitar chimes into where Larry and, and, and Adam come in. And you tried over and over and over again for him to make that time signature change, and he couldn't do it. Uh, and it was, again. Uh, I, I know how it happened. Okay, so. <laughs> and, and there's a story about some tape off who defended the tape machine from Brian Eno who wanted to go and erase everything. What's uh, the truth? Well, in regards to the band finally getting a handle on the, the mystery of the time signature, we simply had a, a very large blackboard on the wall, much like in science class. I was, in, I was the science teacher, so I had the pointer, and I pointed at the chord changes as they came around. So I go, one, two, three, four. <laughs> and then I would walk through, walk the band through all the intro chords that were a little bit 
a little bit complex because, as you pointed out, it went from a, I think it was a six eight to a four four. So it was it, it became um, it was a bit of a science class there until the rhythm section understood where the downbeat was, and then off they went. So in regards to the destroying of a tape, Eno doesn't have a lot of patience. So if something takes too long, he probably think, he thinks there's something wrong with that and we should just move on to something else. And he had instructed one of the tape ops, as they call them then, one of the assistants to just erase the track and not tell anybody what he had done. But he was an honest man and he wouldn't do it. <laughs> They embraced America in, in a huge way, and that became the subtext, not a very subtle subtext, but definitely the subtext for, for the entire record. Uh, why did you two become so fascinated with the United States? Well, to be honest with you, uh, I'm not sure what that was all about culturally, but certainly in terms of, of sonics, you know, the... Uh, um, we all, even even here in Canada, we all grew up with uh, American blues ringing in our ears, uh, the sounds of Detroit from Motown, and there's always been a very high regard for American innovation. So the, the lads were no exception. You know, they they understood that much of what happened had already happened in Britain, had originally came from America. We move on to, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Uh, U2 always has spiritual gospel overtones to some of the stuff that they do. We think about songs like Bad and 40. Uh, but this really was Bono embracing American gospel with that song. Yes, it does have a gospel feeling to it, uh, especially when all the, the background vocals come in. It was... Uh, we had a rule. We, we, all, we all did our own background singing. We didn't employ background singers, so it was, it was always The Edge and Eno and myself. Um, and so we, we hunkered down and we turned this thing into a lovely gospel song. But uh, as I was watching the, uh, the documentary on the making of, Bono hit on something interesting. He said, of course we're coming into this fairly well-known gospel territory and the job at hand then would be to find a new twist or some kind of an angle that would give us a license to visit this wonderful territory. And as I went through the individual tracks of the multi, I realized that we had had a good go at a good few ingredients that, that gave us a chance to reinvent gospel for ourselves. Um, but what's, what's sweet about that song is it started out with Larry's drum beat. Uh, which was a, a great drumbeat that I always loved. That was uh, done uh, in a jam session. We 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 had a, a, a work title. I think it was "Under the Weather" or "Under the Weather Girls," something like that. But the, the drum part was always the best part of it. And so I kept fighting to use that drum part, and and uh, it became the spine of um, of the song. Back with more of my conversation with Daniel Lanois on the making of the Joshua Tree coming up. So let's go on to track three. First single was With or Without You. Bit of a surprise because it was such a, 
a downbeat song for a band that was known for Sunday Bloody Sunday and I Will Follow and, and yeah. Two Hearts Beat as One. Uh, what was the thinking behind choosing that as, as a single? Or did it even come up as a choice when you guys were making the record? I don't think we thought of it as a single as we were working on it. Uh, it just started becoming everybody's favorite song and, and some of the folks uh, from the U2 office and people hanging around always gravitated to it and they said, well, that's, there's something really special about that. So you have to listen to those kind of voices as, as people come in with their comments. Um, but as we were driving over here uh, to see you tonight, Al, we uh, went through Chinatown and I said to my crew in the car that the infinite sustain guitar was born in Chinatown in Toronto by an old friend named Michael Brook. Um, and he, uh, he comes from a, a family of scientists. He went to Long and McQuaid's and they were out of ebos. Ebo is the thing you put it on your strings and you get this kind of cyclical sound. So he went back home and built his own. And that became the infinite, the infinite sustain guitar. He built one for, uh, for himself. For Edge, and then I have the third one. And we hear it on With or Without You? On um, With or Without You. You know, that stratospheric guitar part, uh, that's the Edge playing the infinite sustained guitar invented in Toronto. It was delivered to us in Dublin, and when we took it out of the case, Edge plugged it in, it sounded beautiful. I said, Edge, well, let's try it on With or Without You, and he did one pass, which was lovely. I said, Edge, could you do a second pass? He did a second pass, which was lovely. Put the guitar down, and those became the two parts that made the finish line. Just like that? Just like that. See, when, when lightning strikes? We were excited about a sound, and, and that goes a long way, you know, when you really believe in something at the moment. Edge is a real technician, isn't he? I mean, this, this guy has more gear than anybody. Edge is, is very technical, that's for sure. He's, um, he's just good at everything, you know? He's a good downhill skier. Um, Do you share toques? Uh, listen, man, I'm Canadian. I started the toque thing. No, we, sh we share the same hairdresser. <laughs> I remember hearing Bullet the Blue Sky for the very first time, thinking, boy, this is angry. This is more angry than Bono has been in a while. Oh, yes. Um, well, it's not hard to figure out the lyrical content. I think it has something to do with America bombing um, El Salvador at the time. And uh, it might have been a, a, a questionable maneuver, and he wanted to have um, his thoughts applied to a song. So that's, I believe that's where it came from, Al, you know, the, what we will do for, for uh, resources and money, ultimately. Um, we recorded the drums in a fairly dry manner, so it was a small room. And then ultimately we decided that the, the drums should be a little more harder hitting and more cavernous. And there was an empty warehouse next door to Windmill Lane. And we set up the band's PA in there and piped the drums into the PA and remiked the PA to give us a little bit more punch. So for you technical people out there, there's a, it's kind of a variation on the reverb chamber, but without reverb, uh, a chamber of density. 
That's exactly what they did for Killing in the Name for uh, Rage Against the Machine in 92. The same technique to get it, that big drum sound. After us. After you, yes. <laughs> U2 and Bullet the Blue Sky, track four on the Joshua Tree. If we're talking vinyl, and of course vinyl was still a very big deal in 1987, we have one more song on side one. Side one ends with Running to Stand Still. And you play guitar on this. Yes, I play guitar. I'm the rhythm guitar player. And there's a lot of improvising in that particular track. Um, Yes, what's nice about that song, it was done as a group. Eno was plugged in, as I was, and Larry was mostly playing a, a floor tom and a bass drum, and it's a really, really lovely thundering part he came up with. Um, but there's, some, there's a kind of magic that happens in the band room, and you know, and myself as the guest musicians on the session. Um, there's something special that happens when we play together. I've always played well with Eno, and uh, it was nice that the guys invited us to be part of the band for those tracks. Suffer the needle chill She's running to stand still Closing out side one of the vinyl version of the Joshua Tree that's running to stand still. We'll move on to side two in our conversation with Daniel Lanois in just a second. We're looking at U2's Joshua Tree album 30 years after its release. And guiding us through the record is a guy who was there to help make it, Canadian co-producer Daniel Lanois. We're going through the record song by song, and we're ready to start talking about side two. And remember, we're back in the old vinyl days when this album came out, and we're going to talk about Larry Mullen's drumming. It's uh, interesting to listen to Larry play on this record because a lot of his uh, previous incarnation as uh, a marching band drummer comes out. Oh, yes. That's, that's how it all started, apparently. He was, uh, he was part of the marching band in school, and... Um, he was a cymbal player originally. He didn't even play the snare drum. You know those cymbals, like, one in his hand, and you bash them together on cue. He bashed them so hard that he inverted the cymbals. <laughs> and so that was the end of the cymbal position. So he then moved on to the snare drum. And that's how he developed this. It's a very unique style that he has. <laughs> now, we have the tour coming up where they're going to play the album front to back and a lot of U2 fans are going to their track listing and looking at number six Red Hill Mining Town this is a song that U2 has never ever played live why do you know? I don't know I, th- I think the is it the, the high notes for Bono? no I don't think it's about the singing I think the the groove works on record, but it's a hard one to pull off live because it plods along. So it's, I think it's hard to hold the audience's attention on a groove that is so half-time. Um, but I, I spoke with Adam about it recently. He says they've, they've uh, redesigned the groove a little bit so that it works better live. Um, I'm assuming that's what it was, you know, because some tracks, some rhythms just work live and some don't. So it's something that might have given them some trouble along the way, but I think they finally solved the problem. Well, the expectation for them to play that are going to be running pretty high, so they're going to have to do it. Yeah, wonder what they're going to do about the brass, huh? 
Um, maybe, uh, well, there's really nice brass on synthesizers these days, so maybe they'll get one of the guys in, because uh, there's a whole city of people below the stage, you know. <laughs> Surely one of them can play a bit of, bit of a keyboard. <laughs> You two and track six from the Joshua Tree. Still have five more songs to go, plus there were all the songs that did not make the record. We'll keep this up for part two of our talk with Daniel Lanwan, get even more super inside info on how this album was made. Meanwhile, feel free to email anytime to alan at alancross.ca. There's my website, which is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. You can get the newsletter that comes with it. It's free and it's packed with all kinds of music news and info every time. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.